Well, good evening and welcome to worship. Those of you who are Iowa fans, you know that story. You know what's going on there. You know the new tradition that was started just this past fall. And it's a tradition that you're incredibly behind. It's a tradition now that started just this past September that, that brings life not just to those who receive it, but those who do it. But for those of you who aren't Iowa fans, and got to be honest with you at my core, I'm not an Iowa fan, but... But when you see that story and you understand the why behind the what, you can't help but be moved by it. See, just to, to see some sort of tradition that happens at the end of the first quarter where 70 plus thousand people turn around and, and give a greeting, if you don't know the why behind the what, it just seems like a ritual. It just seems like some sort of empty tradition that you're doing because everybody else around you is doing it. But when you start to hear the story, when you start to hear the heart behind the story, you realize that what you're a part of is something that's so much bigger, something so much greater, something so huge that in just a month's time, ESPN runs the story to millions of viewers. Because the why is so powerful that it trumps the what every single time. It's because of the story. The story that it's connected to. Our lives, every one of our lives is connected, they're connected to stories. Your life tells a story. Your life is connected to a story. My life tells a story. Now some days the story that I'm telling is one that I would be okay with and happy with and maybe on the best of days very proud of but on other days not so much but it tells a story but more than that infinitely more than that my life is connected to a story and when I know that why and when I know that story it helps me to understand what, what I'm a part of and what I'm a, supposed to, to do and what I'm supposed to be. And it helps to make it so much easier. And it makes so much more sense. We need to know the why behind the what. It's why we do uh, what we do in my house when I was growing up that was absolutely painstaking for me every Christmas Eve. My parents mandated that we would read the entire Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke when I was just a little guy up until the age of 40 and I wanted to read open presents so badly. My parents would say, no, we have to tell the story. And I would say, why do we have to tell the story? My dad would always look at me and he'd say, Jeremy... If it wasn't for this story, you wouldn't be opening a present right now. So open the Bible and read the story. Got to know the why before the what makes sense. My kids, the last probably four or five months, they, they've been really curious and really interested on, on Bridget, my wife, their mom and their dad, and, and why, my, it's because their interest is because my, my daughter, who's five and a half years old, is absolutely boy crazy right now, in a very terrifying way. She comes home every day and tells me of the little boys that she's in love with, and it's just, wow, you're five and a half. Give it a few years, my dear. It'll only get worse. 
Thank God for teenage boys because that will turn her stomach to boys for at least a little bit of time. But they want to know. They want to know why, why my wife and I, they want to know the why behind the what. They know that we're married. We know that they're their parents. And they want to know why. And I told my son the other day, I said, I want to know why too. Because when I look at her, when I look at me, it just doesn't make sense. I had to fool her just long enough until she would say yes. And then I could say, gotcha. So they scroll through pictures. And they're amazed that at one point in time, I actually had hair. And they want to know every single thing that's happening in every single story. And they want us to tell it again and again and again and again. Because without that story, they know enough now to know that they wouldn't be here. And the story that they're connected to, it matters. Same thing with you. Same thing with your life. And the story that we're connected to, that's why what we've been doing over the last few weeks as we've launched into this, this fall, as we've been doing this, this sermon series, Here We Stand, as we've been kind of taking a fresh look at the, the foundations of our faith and and why we believe what we believe and what's the why behind the what and the story that we're connected to and being able to take a fresh look at it and fresh eyes at it and being able to understand what is truly at the basis and the foundation. Because if we don't answer that question and if we don't investigate it, sometimes we can get lulled into thinking that our faith doesn't matter. Or we come to worship on the weekend just because it's the thing that we should do or we ought to do or we're scared what would happen if we don't do it. And today we're going to look at two of those things that for, for many of us can be confusing. We don't quite understand the, the why behind what we're doing and what I'm talking about is baptism and communion. There's a word that we use for those in the church. They're called the sacraments. The sacraments literally is that which is made holy. That in and of themselves, it's not about the water. At our baptismal font, which is what that is over at the back of the, the stage where, where we look at every single week. It's, it's a baptismal font. And it's made out of a limestone from Iowa and stone that was donated to the church from the Holy Land where Jesus lived Reminds us that the extraordinary breaks through right in the middle of our ordinary. But we don't know why baptism matters. It's one of our sacraments. It's, it's not about the water, but it's about God. We look at communion and the bread and the wine. It's not about the bread and the wine. Sacrament literally means that which is made holy. It, it's that which Christ has commanded that has a physical element that delivers us by faith. When we look at baptism in communion, we look at baptism, that there is a command that Christ gave, that Jesus gave. He said, you must go, you should go do this. Matthew chapter 28, the very end of the story in Matthew's gospel. Jesus had already been put to death. He'd already been raised from the, death, from the dead in, into life. 
He had appeared over 11 times to over 500 people and announced to every single one of them that what he had told them was going to happen and what they had been told was going to happen had actually happened. And just before Jesus ascends into heaven for the very last time, he looks at the disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, he says, Therefore, because of everything, because of everything that you have heard, everything that I have taught, and everything that you've witnessed, that you've been a part of, because of the fact that I was put to death, but I was raised to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit, because God has done something extraordinary, and, and what God has done is going to change and change the course of your life. Because of all of this, Jesus says in Matthew 28, therefore go, go and do this. Baptize all of the world in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach these new followers everything that I have taught you. It's commanded by Christ. Has a physical element, a substance to it. Delivers us by faith. It's not about you. It's not about you. Baptism is not about you making a decision for Christ. It's through the water and through God's word. His promise. Paul says it this way in, in Romans chapter 6. Paul says, don't, don't forget don't forget that we, we died and we're buried with Christ by baptism. That in baptism, we're joined to the life of Jesus Christ. And just as he was put to death, so is our sin, the power of death, and the forces of evil. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Don't forget this, Paul says. There's a promise that comes with it. It's the same thing with communion, with the bread and the wine. Jesus had sat with his disciples. It's in Luke chapter 22. And Jesus sits down with his disciples and he's about to share a meal with them. And the meal that Jesus is going to share with his disciples is a meal that they would know quite well. It was a meal that would celebrate the holiest day of their lives. It was called the Passover meal. And in Passover, it's the holiest day for, for somebody who is a Jewish person, who followed the Jewish law. It was the holiest day because during Passover, they celebrated what God had done once upon a time. And they hoped and they prayed that God would do it again. The beginning of the story, if we go all the way back to, to Genesis, the beginning of the story is a story about a God who wants to be in relationship with his people, but you know how that story goes. And, and from Adam and Eve through the fall and through, through Noah and the ark, and from that point on, everything kind of gets twisted. And, and from God's family, God's people, the Israelites... We get this mess in the beginning of the book of Exodus, which is the central story of the Old Testament. We need to know the why. If we know, don't know the why, the what's not going to make sense to us. 
So go to the book of Exodus and the Israelites, God's people, had found themselves themselves in, in slavery. A place where they had absolutely no hope at all. But there was a problem. Not only were they in slavery, but Pharaoh, the ruler of the Egyptians, was threatened by them. Because as they were in slavery, as they were in Egypt, their numbers continued to increase. And so Pharaoh, rather than being reasonable, rules by fear, which whenever we do that, nothing good happens. It's never good to act when you lead with fear. But Pharaoh makes a law that all of the firstborn children in Israel should be put to death. It's going to try to wipe them out. Not only that, he increases the demands of their slavery. He's literally going to kick the spirit out of them. That if he can work them so hard, even if they would want to revolt, they wouldn't have the life to do it. So God calls a guy by the name of Moses and he calls Moses and and he calls Moses and he says to Moses, Moses, you're going to lead my people, the Israelites, from slavery into freedom. And Moses, I'm going to do this through you. So at first Moses rejects. He he doesn't want any part of it, but God calls him and, and he sends him and he sends Moses to go to Pharaoh to try to get Pharaoh to release them. But Pharaoh refuses. God says to Moses, Moses, you need to go and tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't release my people, that, that, the, that the Egyptian are going to suffer these series of plagues. And one plague, two plagues, three plagues, four plagues. It continues to get worse. But still, Pharaoh won't let the people go. So finally, God says to Moses, Moses, you need to tell Pharaoh If he won't release the Israelites, if he won't set you free, the firstborn sons and the the male animals in every household will be killed. That I'm going to send the angel of death across the entire land. But Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to go and tell all of the Israelites to gather with one another and to eat a special meal, to sit down and to share this meal. He gives specific instructions to what that meal is going to be like and share this meal, but also take an animal without defect, without any blemishes on it, and take that animal and sacrifice that animal, Moses. Tell them they need to sacrifice and take the blood of the sacrifice, and they need to smear it on the doorposts of their home. And Moses, when the angel of death passes through Egypt, it will pass over those who've been marked with the blood of the sacrifice. And it happens. And Pharaoh lets him go. So year after year after year, After a year, the Israelites would gather, the Jewish people would gather, and they would celebrate the fact that God had allowed death to pass over his people. It's all about freedom. 
And they were hoping that God would do it again. We hope for that, don't we? I mean, in some way, shape, or form, I, I think that all of us can relate to a place in our lives where we wish that whatever it was that we were facing would pass over us. It's what Jesus did with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. So he reminds them of the story. And Jesus takes the meal where they're celebrating what God had done once upon a time and Jesus changes it in a way that wouldn't just affect their lives, but it affects ours as well. See, it's not the bread and it's not the wine. It's the announcement of the promise that God has for you, for me. It's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When he recalls the words that Jesus had spoken that last night that he had with his disciples, where Jesus takes the bread and he gives it and he, he offers it and he starts to use these words that were words that they would know, but words that were meaning so much more. And he says, this is bread and it's broken for you. This bread that would give you life. This bread that would remind you of the way in which God had provided for his people. But this bread, it's, it's my body and it's broken for you and it's given for you. Take it and eat it and to do it to remember me. In the same way, he took, takes wine and he says this, it's wine, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and it's been given, it's been poured out for you. So that you wouldn't have to remember the time in which your ancestors put blood on the doorposts of their home, but this blood would be the sign of the covenant that would mark the doorposts of your soul. So that all of the things that would ever keep you at a distance or make you feel that in whatever, in whatever way that you're feeling that, that your life isn't what your life should be, that you'd be reminded that there is a God who has given his body and his blood for you to, to set you free, to forgive you from your sins. And, and Paul says, for every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death, the fact that God died for you. That sin and death and evil would be put to death and that would be what you would be experiencing when you consume the, the elements of communion. It's not the bread and the wine. But through God's word, Christ's presence is in, with, and under the bread and the wine and, and it does something by faith inside of you. It brings you to new life, everlasting life. It's the power of the sacraments. It's the power of, of what we do when we experience the miracle of baptism and the power of the smallest meal that you'll ever have all week, but the most powerful for sure. This last Monday, I was getting ready to take my daughter to dance. Our daughter has dance on Monday nights. It's the cutest thing ever. And so every other week, our son stays home because he wants no part of watching his sister dance. So Bridget and I, we 
flip-flop weeks, who's going to take Jade to dance and who's going to stay home with Trey, and it was my week to take Jade to dance, and right, right before I left, right before I left, I got a phone call from somebody here at church, and they told me that there was a family that, 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 needed, that I needed to call. It was a family that I had met, met with just about four months before that. A guy by the name of Larry, his wife Mary, and they had come in because they were worried about their son, Sergey. There they are, right there. So I called Mary on Monday night. It was probably just after four o'clock. Mary and Larry know that I'm sharing their story. They're actually here worshiping with us tonight. They gave me permission. Wouldn't do it without permission. I went over to their house and their son, Sergei, had, had taken his life. That happens way too much. I mean, all of death takes a really bad blow to all of our lives. But this one, right now, it's happening way too much in our community. Way too much. Too many young people are thinking that this is the only hope that they have. And we got to do something about it. So Larry and Mary have decided that they're going to shine a very bright light The only light that is strong enough to drive that darkness out on the problem of mental illness in our culture, not that if you struggle with some sort of mental illness that you are the problem. You're not. You're not. And if we're going to be honest, in this room tonight, over a third of the people that are here in the worship center right now are either struggling with, de with depression or anxiety. You're not alone. But we don't talk about it. Because we're scared what's somebody going to think about it if they know that I don't have it together or are they going to think that there's something wrong with me. There's not. So it was, as I was at their house, they're reminding me of the story that they had and sharing the incredible life they had with their son. They adopted him when he was 12 years old. They adopted him from, from Russia. Started the adoption process uh, when he was about 11 years old and it took a while to go through the process. And when they got him here to the United States, they started to, to realize and to understand that he had suffered more in his first 10 years of life than most of us could ever imagine. And had they known it before they adopted him, they still would have adopted him. But this young man was facing horrors, the effect of which haunted him. And they sought treatment and they sent him to different places to, to do anything they could to get their child that they loved dearly the help that he needed but unfortunately 
in a moment of darkness, he took his life. I was sitting, I was standing with Mary and Larry and Larry's son, Brent, and we're sitting and standing in their living room. It was right before I was going to leave last Monday, and I'll, I'll never forget it. Mary said to me, Jeremy, before you go, I just need to ask you, just need to ask you a question. Just need to know. I need to know what does God think of Sergei? I mean, what hope does he have? This is why what we're talking about tonight is so important. Because not only when they adopted that child did they give him a new life that he could have never imagined had he stayed in the country of his birth because he had no one. But when they adopted him, they introduced him to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where he received the promise that God spoke over him in his baptism. That Paul will say in Romans chapter 8 that nothing, don't miss this, that nothing in all of creation could ever separate him from the love of God that comes through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, not the powers of the sky above or the earth below, not even the powers of hell can ever separate you from the love of God that comes through Christ Jesus. It's not just the water. It's God's promise. The promise that he spoke through, through Moses that delivers the Israelites from the slavery that they were experiencing and brings them to a new life, to freedom, is the same promise that is spoken into your life and to mine. that we encounter also in the bread and the wine. That this gift, this story that you're connected to, it's for you. It's for you. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you feel is the defining moment of your life. That's not more powerful than the promise of God. And he invites us to come to the table where we get to experience and encounter his presence in real time, right here, right now. It's for you to bring you life to remind you that you have a God who has claimed you and forgives you. The most important words that you will hear all day are when whoever is serving communion to you looks at you in the face, says this is for you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.
proclaimed good news to the reality of your life. That's why we do this. That's why the why definitely shapes the what. We have a God who comes, who loves, who reminds his disciples of a time in which God had come through in a big way delivered them but now would deliver them for eternity